0: Open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I've entitled the verses that we're looking at, Spiritual Warfare. One of the best things that you can do when you receive a critical letter or email, probably in today's world, is to set it aside for a period of time. If you're in a position of leadership, and you receive criticism, it's best to set it aside for a little while, let it cool down. Don't fire off a a hot response because you'll probably regret it later. But if you let it cool and you think about it and pray about it, you'll probably have an opportunity to write something back that will do maximum benefit with minimum damage. I think that is exactly what the apostle Paul did in his letter here, you know that the church at Corinth was his problem child, maybe we would say. They had a number of problems. And there was a rebellion in the church against the Apostle Paul who founded the church. The Judaizers, the legalists had come in and had fomented this attitude that Paul is a dictator, that Paul doesn't really care for you, he's seeking your money, etc. They had a number of things that they had infiltrated the church with. Paul is writing this letter to deal with some of those problems. Obviously, the tone of the letter changes from chapter 9 to chapter 10. Matter of fact, so dramatically that some commentators say that these are two separate letters, that chapters 10 through 13 were a second letter or another letter that was tacked on to 2 Corinthians. Others say No, it was a postscript that Paul received information while he was writing his letter about what was going on at Corinth. And so he addressed those issues and those problems in chapters 10 through 13. But more than likely, chapters 1 through 9 address the repentant majority at the church at Corinth. And so he deals with the repentant majority. But chapters 10 through 13, he deals with the minority that are still being influenced by the Judaizers, the false teachers, and so Paul deals very sternly with them in these last four chapters. In this first section that we're looking at here today, Paul gives some divine insight for the Christian soldier who is waging spiritual warfare. Whether we want to accept the reality of it or not, we are all in spiritual warfare. If we're a believer today, we're in spiritual warfare. This world is not friendly to the children of grace. This world system is held sway and ruled by the prince and power of the air, Satan. And he would like to destroy you your Christian testimony, and God's instrument in this age, the church. We recognize that. And we would be naive not to pick up that common theme that runs throughout the New Testament. So what is spiritual warfare? We know about Ephesians chapter 6. We've been dealing with that on Sunday night, about the armor of God. Paul deals with it at a little different level here in second corinthians chapter 10 so let's just kind of break down these first six verses future next week and the following weeks i'll deal with christmas themes but we'll come back to the second half of chapter 10 probably in the new year so spiritual warfare i see three ideas i had a hard time kind of developing my outline i threw the first one away but here's the second outline the revised Outline of these verses. Number one, a Christian soldier must maintain proper humility. Let's look at verses one and two. Now, I, Paul, myself am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly amongst you. So he's describing how Christ was and how Paul was when he was with the Corinthian believers. With meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly amongst you, but being absent and bold towards you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with you. I'm hoping that your attitude will change. The repentance of the minority who haven't repented will come to fruition that I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. So Paul deals with this subject of a Christian soldier, if he's going to be effective, must keep his humility. He must maintain humility. Paul appeals to those individuals and he uses the word meekness and gentleness The word translated gentleness here is often translated in the New Testament, kindness. He says, I came to you with meekness and kindness and gentleness. And that word picture is those that don't seek to retaliate. Paul could have retaliated against this rebellious minority that was rejecting his apostolic authority. And Paul doesn't appeal to them on personality. He doesn't deal with them on his authority as an apostle. He deals with them with meekness and kindness and describes our Lord. We're all familiar probably with the verse, Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. It says, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and lowly in heart and you shall find rest for your soul. So Jesus came with meekness, with gentleness, with kindness, with lowliness, with humility. And Paul is coming to them, appealing to them with that same tenor not with a harshness not with boldness he says if i have to i will but not now not in my letter paul's adversaries insinuated that paul wrote strong and bold letters but in person he was soft-spoken he was a weakling or in our modern vernacular he was a wimp is how they described him Let's pick up in verse eight. For even if I should boast something more about our authority, he's talking about his apostolic authority, which they were rejecting, which the Lord gave us for the edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed. Lest I seem to terrify you by my letters, for his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful. In other words, they're strong and they're authoritative. But his bodily presence is weak. And his speech is contemptible. They weren't proud of Paul. They dismissed Paul, this minority there at the church in Corinth. So they were accusing him of being duplicitous. His letters are one way. His personality is a different thing. His letters are bold. His personality is kind of weak and timid. He's really cowardly. He writes a strong letter, but when he's with us, he's not that strong, he's not that dominant, he's not that authoritative is what they were saying, and that's being filtered through the church. But the biblical record speaks to Paul's courage. He wasn't cowardly. He wasn't a wimp. He was bold and he was courageous. Paul was very courageous for the gospel. He faced hostile mobs. He endured beatings. He endured shipwrecks. He endured imprisonment. He endured the plots on his life. He proclaimed the gospel fearlessly before the Jewish Sanhedrin, Acts 23, before Roman governors, Acts 24 and 25, before King. Herod Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. And even before the emperor of Rome, Acts chapter 27. So Paul was fearless. He was bold. He was courageous. He didn't worry about the consequences. So what they were saying about him was not true and it was not fair. But he was appealing to them in love because they were his children in the Lord. A lack of humility can be disastrous. And Paul was, even though he was a great apostle, an intrepid church planner and the writer of much of the epistles that we find in our New Testament, he kept his ego in check. He was very humble because he knew, as all of us should know, that humility is critical for a Christian soldier. When we become puffed up, when we become proud, when we think that, that we can accomplish things on our own, that's when we fall. Illustrated many times in history at the Battle of Little Bighorn. You know the story. George Armstrong Custer recklessly led his men against a much larger force of Sioux and Cheyenne warriors. In the ensuing battle, his regiment was destroyed. He and all 210 of his men that were under his command were all killed. They were all slaughtered, all scalped, in part because. Custer arrogantly began to believe that he was invincible in battle. He had won so many battles that he thought he was invincible and he could not die at the hands of the Indians, but he was slaughtered as well as his men. We advanced the kingdom The kingdom of God, not with haughty self-confidence. We have the truth. We have the Holy Spirit. Or, you know, this is truth and and you believe lie. We don't advance the kingdom of God with haughty self-confidence, but with humble God reliance. That's how we advance the kingdom of God. So a Christian soldier must maintain proper humility. Second, a Christian soldier must utilize spiritual weaponry. I hope that you get what Paul is saying. We wanna take a moment and really kinda see what he's saying here in these following verses. Look at three through five. For though we walk in the flesh, Paul says, I am a man. I have a body. I'm not superhuman. I'm not a super Christian. We walk in the flesh. We put our pants on, our robe on, just like the rest of you. So he says, Although we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. We don't do battle according to human means. We don't use the typical weapons of warfare when it comes to spiritual battle. We don't war with swords and shields and spears and bows and arrows. That's not how we win spiritual battles. We walk in the flesh, but we do not war according to the flesh. That's a great reminder for us. We're walking in this flesh and our flesh is tempted and Satan appeals to our flesh, but we don't win spiritual battles the way an army wins physical battles. Verse four, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty. Maybe we would say they're much greater. They're much more mighty than carnal weapons. They're mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. Casting down arguments, pulling down these arguments, casting down arguments. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, every ideology that is in opposition to the truth of the word of God, we pull them down, Paul says. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. In other words, everything that's out there in the world of ideas, everything that we see, promulgated in our culture whether it be through television or the internet or through books and magazines or on the radio wave we bring into captivity we take them under the scrutiny of the word of god and we say that's either truth or it's falsehood it's either coming for god or it's coming from satan and his emissaries every thought is brought into captivity and examined by the word of God. So a Christian soldier must utilize spiritual weaponry. Paul admits that he was a mere man. He was a mere mortal. He says, we walk in the flesh. And some of the Corinthians had actually sunk to taunting Paul about his personal appearance. Everything that we know about Paul, he was large in character, but his body was less than spectacular, maybe we would say. Matter of fact, it comes down to us from a very early book that was written about 200 AD, a personal description of Paul. It comes from the book, The Acts of Paul and Thecla, dating back to about 200 AD. And it describes him, and I'll quote from it, as a man of little stature, Thin-haired upon the head. In other words, at best he had a comb over, but more than likely he had very little hair. Thin-haired upon the head, crooked in the legs, of a solid state in body, he was short and stocky, built like a fire hydrant, <laughs> is my interpretation, uh, of good state of body, with eyebrows meeting. In other words, he had a unibrow, you know, just one big brow, bushy, bushy brow across his forehead, and with nose somewhat hooked, typical Roman nose, but full of grace, for sometimes he appeared like a man, and sometimes he had the face of an angel. There's a description of Paul, short, bald, a unibrow, bow-legged you know, not very appealing to look at. But sometimes as he spoke, they felt like he had the voice of an angel. Matter of fact, here in this passage, it talks about he wasn't a good orator. The Greeks loved that. The Greeks loved oratory. And people that spellbind them with their eloquence and their ability to capture the crowd with their words and the rising and falling of their voices, that was not Paul. Everything that we know about Paul, that was not Paul. Matter of fact, it was not typical of Jewish rabbis. They spoke in a monotone. And they usually read, seldom is a great mind and a great soul deposited in a beautiful body or wedded to a beautiful body. Now, that was probably true of Paul. Paul. Great soul, great mind, but a frail body. And they picked on him, the Corinthians, because he didn't measure up to the standard of the Greek and Roman orators that they preferred. So yes, Paul was a mere man. Matter of fact, maybe we would say even a poor example of manhood itself but he did not go into spiritual battle. He admits, I am a mere man, but I do not go into spiritual battle using carnal weaponry. It's not my physical prowess. It's not my physical strength, nor the weapons that I would ever carry. Paul probably didn't carry a weapon, even a concealed carry weapon. Paul didn't carry a weapon most likely, but he did spiritual battle a spiritual war cannot be successfully waged with fleshly weapons that's the point spiritual warfare cannot be waged with carnal fleshly material weaponry the christian's arsenal is not human ingenuity human personality human ideology human authority or human methodology. That's not how we wage spiritual warfare. I can't be dependent, you can't be dependent upon ideology, personality, any of the things that I just mentioned. That's not what's going to win the battle for Jesus Christ in the kingdom of God. In the battle for souls, it is not commanding eloquence. It is not organizational skill. It is not slick marketing. It is not psychologically reasoning people into the kingdom of heaven that brings God's blessing or converts lost souls. That's not how people are converted. It's the word of God, the Holy Spirit, backed by our prayers. Paul gets to that, and we know that from other passages in the New Testament. No, we need divine weaponry from the heavenly arsenal. If we are to tear down strongholds, notice that phrase here, used a couple times, strongholds. It's a specific Greek word that's describing a fortress. In the ancient world, all the great Greek cities had an Acropolis. You've heard that term. Acropolis means city and Acropolis is just talking about a high hill. Greek Acropolis is probably one of the most famous ones, but Corinth had one. Paul is using that term. He said, if we're going to tear down in spiritual battle, the fortresses that seem impregnable, that seem as though they can never be scaled and a battle can never be won against them, then we have to use spiritual weaponry. So the fortress in view here. He's talking about something that they were all familiar with. Every city had an Acropolis, a fortified place where the inhabitants could flee to if they were under attack and under siege and they could be protected there. Now, when Paul uses the word fortress, when Paul uses this word stronghold, what he has in mind here is not demonic, but ideological. He's talking about ideological strongholds that Satan captures people into and they believe these lies. It's not so much that they're encaptured by demonic strongholds. We understand that they're blinded by Satan. Unsaved people are blinded by Satan. We get that. But it's their ideological strongholds that they've sought refuge in instead of turning to the word of God. They've rejected the word of God and embraced other false beliefs. That's what he's referring to. The battle for captive souls is against false ideologies that men and demons propagate that enslave men's minds. And you stop and think about it. Every lost person that you know has a belief system. They have a worldview. They have a philosophy that they're hanging on to. And they're seeking shelter in that belief system. It may be even a false religious system it may be a cult it may be evolutionary naturalism believing in evolution that the big bang and everything followed through with millions and billions of years but they have a belief system that they're hiding themselves into and they're seeking refuge in it and we know not original with me Ideas have consequences. Bad ideas have victims. So when people believe a false system... They're going to be victims to those false systems, not just now, but particularly in eternity. So Paul says our job as Christians in waging spiritual warfare is to tear down those strongholds, to destroy. We sometimes call it apologetic. Apologetic is defeating the thinking, the false thinking that people have in our world today. Defeating those false systems of belief. Whether that be their philosophy, whether that be psychology, world religion, cults, evolution, whatever it is. How do we destroy these fortresses? What does he call them? Of lofty opinions. That, that's the word that's used here. They're lofty opinions that stand in opposition. What does he say? To the word of God. These high opinions that they have. That's our world today. They have these high opinions of their belief system as it stands in opposition to the word of God. How do we destroy these fortresses, these strongholds of lofty opinions that stand in defiance to God's truth by utilizing the sword of the spirit, Ephesians chapter six, verse 17. It's the only offensive weapon that's given to the Christian soldier the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, he tells us. It's the word of God that penetrates false belief systems. They may not believe the word of God, but God believes the word of God. And God uses the word of God to destroy their false belief systems. Poke it full of holes. When I went to Uh, Bible college, there was a professor that I had that taught biological science survey. And he shared, I'm sure probably every year, how he was converted. That he went to one of the familiar Ivy League schools and was confronted with the truth of the gospel and didn't believe it, couldn't reconcile it, thought it was a myth in the Christmas tale. And he ended up being in the hospital. And uh, Dr. Mulfinger ended up in a bed next to a Christian in the hospital. And this Christian shared with him the gospel. He said, I don't believe any of that. I'm a scientist. And he was in graduate school. And he threw out some arguments to him. And finally, this Christian said to him, uh, well, what do you believe? He said, well, I believe that Jesus was just a good person, knew the Old Testament somewhat and went about doing good and trying to fulfill prophecies. He said, well, how did he arrange for himself to be born in Bethlehem that was prophesied 700 years before his birth? None of us can arrange our own birth, the location, time, city, etc. And Dr. Mulfinger couldn't escape from that thought as he was witness to and came to Christ and then ended up teaching at Bob Jones University after he grew in his faith we're to be pulling down these false systems of belief and we do it through the word of God it gets into people's hearts it gets into people's mind they can't escape it it festers it grows it irritates them and they have to deal with it And God uses it to bring them to a saving knowledge of himself. It's the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Only the truth of God's word can defeat satanic falsehoods and those who are held captive by it. So we shouldn't be ashamed of the word of God. We shouldn't be ashamed of giving out a gospel track because it's the word of God. It contains the word of God. It's appealing to to that a restaurant worker or that co-worker or that relative or that neighbor, and they read the gospel track. That's how I got saved. Going to the phone booth while I was studying engineering and making phone calls. I had a system of cheating the phone company, and I would make free phone calls, but there was a new gospel track there every week, and I would slip it into my pocket when nobody was looking. In the fraternity house, I would read that gospel track, those chick tracks, those little picture tracks, And the word of God got into my heart and it changed my thinking. And through my roommate, I came to Jesus Christ. It was through gospel tracts that contained the word of God. So we all go fill up our pockets. We have a track rack out here because the word of God has power. It is the sword of the spirit we may question its power sometimes, but the gospel still has power. As Paul says in Romans, it is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is. And so Paul says, use the word of God to defeat satanic faults of these strongholds of belief that people retreat to and feel secure in when they're confronted with the truth of the word of God. Number three, a Christian soldier must know his enemy. Verse five and and really verse six. A Christian soldier must know his enemy. Look at those verses again. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Man loves to do that. Exalt their belief system against the knowledge of God. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We need to do that. We need to take our thoughts that tend to take us off in different directions and say, God, if I'm not thinking biblically, if I'm not ordering my life after the word of God, I wanna bring my thinking, my thoughts, captive to the word of God, submissive to the word of God. Verse six, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. A Christian soldier must know his enemy. A basic understanding of the enemy and his tactics is fundamental for victory in battle. It isn't just bigger numbers or better weaponry. It's understanding how the enemy attacks us, how the enemy does battle. The notion that spiritual warfare involves direct confrontation with demons is foreign to scripture. He's not talking about us Confronting Satan. We see that in the book of Jude. Even Michael the archangel wouldn't rebuke Satan because of his power. He said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet we have some that will promulgate the idea that that we take on Satan. Or we take on the demons. And we confront them. There's no precedent in scripture for that for Christians to be confronting Satan. The notion that spiritual warfare involves direct confrontation with demons is foreign to scripture. Christians who verbally confront demons waste their energy and probably demonstrate their ignorance concerning real spiritual warfare. We pray and we lay down truth. And the Bible says, when Jesus laid down the truth to Satan, he fled from him. The Bible tells us that in the book of James. When we're tempted, we lay down the truth of the word of God and Satan departs from us as well as his emissary demons. The word of God is our most effective weapon. That means that, you know, just like a soldier, those of you who are in the military, you racked your rifle, you tore it apart, you put it back together. Sometimes you had to do it blindfolded in the dark. You handled it so much, so often, and got so used to it that you did it without thinking. It was automatic. That's the way the word of God is to be with us. We handle it so much, it steeps into our life, that it's inherent, it's second nature to it. We can handle the word of God just automatically when truth is challenged or falsehood is set forth, we instinctively are able to pull back a passage of Scripture and lay it out there to confront the falsehood, the strongholds that people are believing in. We're so saturated with the Word of God, it instinctively, like a soldier can handle his weapon, as he has done so many times, we handle the weapon of the Word of God, and we tear down strongholds. We defeat these fortresses of ideological Beliefs that Satan has captured people with. It is impossible to fight error without knowing the truth. It is impossible to fight error, and error is all around us if we don't have a solid grip on the truth. Soldiers train constantly to be able to automatically use their weapons without forethought. We must instinctively think and speak the scriptures we're not called to convert demons we're called to convert sinners we're not fighting so much against demons as we're fighting against the ideological beliefs and there are many in our world as we've talked about psychology philosophy cults and religions and naturalism evolution etc that we need we don't need to know everything about every cult, and every false religion, and all about evolution. We just need to be thoroughly acquainted and familiar with the word of God. That's our offensive weapon. Paul is saying in verse 6, he shifts here for just a moment. He says, and being ready to punish all disobedience. Because remember, there were the, most of the church was repentant and he commended them for that in the earlier chapters one through nine, but there was a small minority that were resistant and they were resisting Paul, resisting the truth and believing the falsehood of these false teachers. And he says, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. In other words, once you take your stand, On the side of either God's truth that I proclaim to you, or you take your stand with the false teachers, then I'll deal with the disobedient. Because I'm coming, Paul says, I'm coming to you. I won't be meek and gentle for those that have refused all of my appeal. I will be bold, he says, in dealing with those who've embraced this false teaching. I will punish those who are living in disobedience, he says in verse 6 just kind of capturing what we've looked at here this morning. We tend to think, oh, there's, there's a lot of brilliant people, and there are a lot of brilliant people out there. There are a lot of smart people with all kinds of degrees. We sometimes say more degrees than Fahrenheit. Okay, so they got all kinds of degrees, and they're, you know, they're, they're very well-educated. How can we convince them? The Word of God. It's the Word of God. When Joshua and his army marched around Jericho for a week, every day for a week, they must have been thought of as fools by probably the most impregnable fortress in all of the land that was going to become theirs, the land of Israel, Palestine, sometimes it's called probably better just put the land of Canaan, okay? Probably the strongest fortress, it was the first one that they faced. And so they marched around the city every day. They marched around it multiple times that last day. And the spectators in the city must've said, these Jews are nuts, they're crazy, they're (laughs) madmen. They think they're gonna win a battle marching around our city. And then that final day, they blew the trumpets They did what God said. They obeyed God's word and the walls fell down. The walls fell outward. We know that from excavation there around the city of Jericho, the walls didn't get knocked in. The walls fell outward just as God said they would because they were obedient. They obeyed the word of God and they won the spiritual battle. They were victorious because they obeyed the word of God. That's an analogy for us. We may look at our Bibles and say, well, I believe it, it's good for me, but I don't know if it'll convince anybody else out there that has got their ideological fortress up. It will, it can, it's powerful. It's the word of God. It's the sword of the spirit. That's how we do spiritual warfare with humility, independence upon God, recognizing our enemy and using our weaponry. That's how we do spiritual warfare. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've given us a completed revelation. You've given us the word of God, which is sufficient for not just all of our needs, but for the pulling down of strongholds and fortresses and everything, every lofty opinion, every high thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Today, may we walk out with a greater confidence, with a greater assurance that the word of God is effective against those who are captive to Satan in wrong beliefs and wrong ideas and will someday face the consequences of those ideas. We ask that you'll help us to wield the sword, to use the word of God in our conversation Gospel tracts, letters, uh, whatever uh, means of communication that we use. May the word of God be such a part of our thinking and our life that we have the verses, we have the truth that we can lay out and combat false ideas. May you use it. May you get glory to yourself. May many souls who are captive to Satan be released because they come to a knowledge of the truth. While our heads are bowed, maybe there's someone here today that has been held by Satan, captive to wrong thinking, never really embraced the truth of the Word of God and the plan of salvation. Maybe you're here today and God is challenging your thinking, challenging your security. the fortress that you've retreated to. He simply wants you to trust the word of God that Jesus died for your sins and paid for your salvation. It's as simple as that. If you will trust him, he will save you. And I invite you to do that today before you leave our service today. Christian, may we take great encouragement to use the word of God in the context that God puts us in, the circumstances that we find ourselves in, use it to influence and bring others to Christ.